Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. What we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot to share everything that we learned. And today, our topic is one that I had this great beginning plan where I was going to reveal some clues about the topic and I was going to have you guess. But then yesterday, Steve invited me and our friend Rich over to his house for a little housewarming deal and totally forgotten, blew it and told you what the topic was going to be about. <laughs> so your whole script, you had to throw it in the garbage this morning. Went out the window. On my way here, I'm like, damn it. <laughs> but you just told me before we turned on the mic that you found a poem about our topic. Yes. Do you want to do it now? Sure, I can do it now. All right, so while Steve's getting out the poem, because I guess he didn't commit it to memory. Nope. <laughs> I can reveal that our topic for this episode is going to be jewelweed. Some of you may know it as Touch Me Not, Impatiens Capensis. Mm -hmm. And we are out here at Birdsong Nature Park, which is an orchard park in New York, about a half an hour east of Buffalo. And we have been here one time before. Again, I was trying to rack my brain for what we came here for, but I don't remember. It was a previous episode we recorded. Yeah, I don't remember. Can't remember what it was. But this is a, a very suburban park. And I think I mentioned last time, this is a park that if you were here, you could see it was designed by someone who, I don't, I don't wanna offend anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but basically this park is here because someone put in a development. Mm. And in Orchard Park, this town, Apparently there's some kind of regulation where if you develop wetland, then you need to establish a certain amount of natural space. Right. So the developers put in the birdsong development, and then there's a nice piece of acreage adjacent to it where they put in some wetlands and some trails. And let's just say it was designed by housing developers, and you can kind of tell that. because. Hmm. <laughs> It's, it's, you mean the Army Corps of Engineers had nothing to do with this place? <laughs> well, it, it's it's very dominated by invasive species, yeah. and, but it is still this, this nice little green space, and I think it is a place that we will be able to find our target species today. We actually passed some on the way in before we started recording, but I'm pretty sure we're going to catch some again. We are here on a... Windy day. A windy day, <laughs> so folks, you're going to have to bear with us. It's going to be a little windy. Yeah. But we're right here near the end of September and this is probably one of the last hurrahs of summer type weather it's about 70 degrees leaves are just starting to turn color here in western new york but still yeah. mostly green yeah i haven't seen much yeah just a little green. bit but sometimes it's just death <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah just stressed out here. right 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 okay so by the way this poem or i should say this is a small part of a much larger poem oh, by yeah by Erasmus Darwin, which is Charles Darwin's grandfather. Oh, okay. But I didn't discover it because I'm some big fan of Erasmus Darwin. I discovered it because I have a book from Diana Wells called How Plants Got Their Names. I think you or, mentioned that before. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read a quote from Diana's book. So Erasmus Darwin, in an appalling poem explaining the <laughs> Linnaean system, said that the impatience, and now I'm actually going to read some of the poem, but I'm actually going to read a little bit more than what she read, because I, I think she, she actually missed a little bit of it. With fierce, distracted eye, impatient stands, swells her pale cheeks, and brandishes her hands. With rage and hate, the astonished grove alarms, 
and hurls her infants from their frantic arms. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Puts a lot of drama in there. I just thought it was kind of a funny <laughs> poem, but... But, but I, I like how you... That was a good introduction, because there may be people out there that... But I'm sure there's probably more people out there. What are these infants being hurled right. from the arms? Yeah. So there's probably more people out there where the jewelweed, also called Touch Me Not, yep. does hurl its seeds out of these pods mm -hmm. that break open with just the very slightest touch. Yeah. What so, would you say the pods look like? I feel like... Uh, they look like jewelweed pods. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so what about if we say, like, imagine a tiny green carrot? No? Mm, I don't know. Because they're more pointed at one end, more broad at the other right, end. Right, right. More like a capsule, really. Right. right? Kind of like an elongated capsule. Yeah. And then if you touch it in the right way, it just explodes and all the all the sides kind of peel back like a banana peel. Well, sort. I'm going to talk about oh, that. Oh, sure. So I don't want to step on your right? toes. Right. Yeah. But let's back up a little bit because mm -hmm. for those people that maybe live in a part of the country where they don't have jewelweed, mm -hmm. uh, and I should point out that there are different species of jewelweed. Mm. For this episode, we are going to focus on what people typically refer to as orange jewelweed, spotted jewelweed. I was going to say, why? I wonder why you focused on the spotted instead of the yellow, because we have a ton of both of them around here. We do, but from what I've seen, the orange one is the more common. Okay. Yeah. So this is an herbaceous plant, blooms late spring to early fall. So we're actually at the very tail end. Uh, we have had some cool nights here, and anything in the around 40, that's when the plant typically starts to go into senescence, right? Mmm, senescence, <laughs> where it starts dying back a it's little bit. Dying back, right. Yeah. So it starts during the summer, or I should say starting during the summer, that's when those seed pods come out that explode with even the, the slightest touch. Yeah, I was at one of my aunt and uncle's house maybe a month ago now, and there were some jewelweed seed pods, but I couldn't get any of them to explode. So I even found one that kind of seemed fat and ready to blow, but Okay, <laughs> and I could, yeah, but I make it blow. I tried and yeah, it wasn't happening. So Steve squeezed yeah. and squeezed. Man. Yeah, I didn't have the touch. So, <laughs> well, let's talk about the flowers for a second. Yeah, it's more like giving birth than what you're thinking of, Bill. All right. <laughs> so this species, Impatiens capensis, the flowers are usually orange, although sometimes they can they can be a really deep blood orange, or I did find that sometimes they are yellow in this species. Hmm. Now. They do have five petals, even looks, even though it looks like they have only three. So they have a three-lobed corolla. So kind of two lobes underneath, one on top. Mm -hmm. And there's three sepals. And I didn't realize this. One of the sepals is the same color as the petals. And it's modified into this large cornucopia-shaped pouch with a nectar spur at the back of the blossom that is bent back, curving underneath the rest of the flower. That's where the nectar is going to be. Right. And, we'll and, and clearly, that. oh, okay. I was going to say, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the flowers do often, but not always, have reddish brown speckles or spots. That's where the spotted jewelweed comes from. Mm -hmm. And again, we'll get into this more, but hummingbirds and long-tongued bees, those are the major pollinators. Now, this is often confused with the other species you mentioned. That's Impatiens pallida. Okay. Which is the pale jewelweed. Mm -hmm. Or it's also called pale touch me now. That has the pale yellow flowers. Mm -hmm. Hi, folks. Oh, you have a job. <laughs> so, what I'm about to say next, I'm dubious of. The description I read said the yellow variety has a short, right angled rear spur where it kind of sticks out the back of the blossom and then the spur comes down at a right angle. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. In the studies that, that I read, 
there's a lot of variability. And from what I could gather, orange jewelweed has a lot of variability in how much the, the rear spur is angled. Hmm. But it typically goes much farther where it's almost recurved back under. Okay. Whereas the yellow is usually not that curved. Okay. So I, I don't want to say one way or the other. But <laughs> that the pale yellow one, the Impatience pallida, does tend to grow in drier sites, whereas our orange jewelweed that we're focusing on tends to grow in more wet sites. Right. D did you read from Eastman at all? I did. I was going to say that yeah. was in his wetland book. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So his Swamp and Bog. Swamp right? and Bog. Yeah, that's the, the one. Book yeah. of Swamp and Bog. So, this species can go th three to five feet tall. So I even heard, read some references up to six feet tall. The round stems are weak, and we're going to have you define a botanical term, glabrous. Glabrous, glabrous. is hairless. Smooth, right. Smooth, right. Yep. Sure. Succulent. I, I call them hairs. I mean, people call them hairs, but they're trichomes. They're not like hairs. <laughs> All and, right. You know, yeah. So. Getting fancy. <laughs> right. So they're succulent. And I read a great description that succulent meant more than usually fleshy. It's probably the worst description. No, that's perfect. <laughs> they're not but, wrong. They're not wrong. But they're usually a little more, I should say, they're... Succulent. Oh. Succulent, right. But they, that's that water storing tissue. I said succulent. Oh. No, no. Succulent. Oh, okay. And then the stems are also semi-translucent. Yeah, translucent. Oh, yeah. 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 I feel like if you put a light behind them, they'd glow real nice. Yeah. So the leaves, they're oval, alternate, and simple. They do have teeth on the margins and then the seed pods as you were talking about they have five valves and then when you touch them they coil back rapidly and eject the seeds now that process is called explosive dehiscence okay dehiscence dehiscence now don't look that up because <laughs> that is in botany uh -huh. that's when a, a way that as far as i know something is opens up right yeah i would cons yeah i would sometimes i think of like dry dehiscent seed pods or, right yeah but it seems that the more common use of that term is talking about wounds after surgery when they don't seal like they're supposed to oh no and like up to a week later the wound can open again <laughs> so when i typed in dehiscence and said i want to see some images of this oh no <laughs> Ugh. A lot of unpleasant images. Okay. So just be careful and maybe type when you type in dehiscence, also type in jewelweed. Right, right. It. Or, or dehiscence, a, a plant. There you go, like plant that. dehiscence. Yeah. It's also referred to as ballisticory. Okay. We've talked about ballistic ejection of, like, for example, in our witch hazel episode, we talk about ballistic oh, that's right. um, seed dispersal. So, so the, the yeah. pods of... Uh, yeah, they kind of burst open the in the yeah. spring, they burst open, or later in the, the fall. fall. But... Because the flowers are around the previous fall, and then they finally explode the next fall, or the. I don't remember. We'll have to... I know. I know it goes over winter at some point, and then eventually the next year it'll do. That it. That was a so. long time ago we recorded. Really, that really long time. I just like the word ballistic, and for some reason, without asking my brain too, I make little mental notes of when I hear it. But so. ballisticory, that made me think of myrmicory. Oh, myrmicory. <laughs> However right? you say it. But that's we talked about that in the ant episode where right. the ants disperse seeds. So this is seeds being dispersed ballistically. Right. So they can go up to four feet away, according mm. to some sources. And this reaction is where the name touch me not comes from. Mm. So it's those mature seed pods. Seed... <laughs> Man, I don't know what's going on today. Mature <laughs> seed pods. You're struggling today. You're struggling so, like I normally struggle. As I mentioned a little before, they're found jewel weeds in mo moist soils ditches, along creeks, along the edges of the woods. 
So it's also referred to as common jewelweed, snapweed, orange balsam. Balsaminaceae, the family. The family. And there is a garden balsam that really the the blossoms that look like jewelweed flowers on steroids. They're Hmm. huge, showy. Obviously, it's why it's it's a garden plant. Because okay. um, I was wondering why it was called orange balsam, and then I found the connection to the, to the family. Now, the one thing about the plant that I wasn't aware of, did you know that jewelweed is an annual? No, I guess I didn't know that. Yeah, so unlike most wildflowers, <laughs> probably every wildflower we've talked about, right. this dies back every year and grows back from seed. Right, right. So, yeah, that was a surprise to me. So, it's funny, when you said died back, I always think of like maybe... Like sometimes uh, a perennial might die back and then it'll come back. No, but you're right. It's but not that it's dying back. It's just dying. It's just dying. No. <laughs> and this new, new plant grows the next year. That's a good uh, distinction to make because it yeah. doesn't die back. It just dies. So the flowers, they're technically bisexual, but they're sequentially unisexual. Okay. So what does that mean? That means the female part will develop first and then the male part develop later or the exact opposite where the male goes first and the female goes second. Exactly. So the yeah. male parts, they develop and decline before the female parts mature. And why is a flower going to do this? It doesn't want to self-pollinate. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So want some more genetic diversity in there. Yeah. So that's called protandrous. Protandrous? Okay. Protandrous. So yeah. proto. So like a, yeah. Proto-androus. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Never mind. Because I think there are. It is possible for a flower to be proto-gynous. Oh, so the females come out first. Yeah, yeah. Female mm-hmm. parts. All right. Now, jewelweed actually does have two types of flowers: the showy flowers that we're used to, and then non-showy, clastep. Oh, I knew I was going to say this Clistogamous. wrong. Clastogamous. Clastogamous. Violets do this too, pretty famously. So. Right. Yeah. So it's known in peanuts, peas, and pansies but it's most widespread in the grass family, and the largest genus of these plants is Viola. Oh, it is Viola, okay. Yeah. So, I, so when I said pretty famously, yeah. it wasn't just me happening to no, hear about no. it. It's that You're I've, right. Yeah. So Steve, tell the audience, what does that term mean and what is the term again? Yeah, Clystogamous flowers are flowers <laughs> that just don't open. They, they, in violets, they kind of stay a little bit lower on the plant, and they just they, the flowers never open up to have like an insect pollinator come in and take Why? care of business. Why? I think it's to ensure some t- some level of seed development. Right. Yeah. Because if you your showy flowers aren't pollinated, then at these... least yeah, at least your inbred ones will be. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, cleistogamy, that word actually means closed marriage. Okay. And do you know what the opposite of that is? What I have with my fiance. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't convinced her yet. I had never heard this term. Chasmogamy is open marriage. Okay. So, and virtually all plants that do produce cleistogamous flowers also produce chasmogamous ones. Right. I, wh- wh- why would you only produce cleistogamous? Er, wait. Oh my God. You now I can't. Even, now I can't even say it anymore. Cleistogamous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why? Why would a? Uh, there's no group that only produces those. I, I would be, think so. I would be shocked. <laughs> that would ruin the whole purpose It'd of sexual reproduction. Genetic so. dead end. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. As I said, virtually all plants that do produce cleistogamous flowers also produce chasmogamous ones. Okay. But tell people, what is the principal advantage of cleistogamy? You, you mentioned it a little bit already. Mm-hmm. So it requires fewer plant resources to produce seeds than the other form. Right, you don't have to pump your resources into showy petals that aren't going to go anywhere. You or know, nectar or pollen. Yeah, or it's just stuff, doing right? the, the reproduction business. And what we think is it's useful for seed production on unfavorable sites or conditions. So jewelweed, for example, it's been observed to produce only 
Cleistogamous flowers after being severely damaged by grazing. Okay. Or to maintain populations in unfavorable sites, like in dense shade or drier soil. Sure. And I mean, especially if you're an annual and you really depend on seed, you know, you might be desperate sometimes. Exactly. So yeah. the disadvantage, as we already mentioned, is self fertilization because the offspring is genetically equal to the parent plant. So these two methods of seed production, they do offer some growth options. Now the force of the explosive seed capsules, listen to this, varies depending on the type of flower that produced it. Hmm. So seeds from an open flower of jewelweed are tossed farther away than the seeds from the closed flowers. Okay. So why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I, I was just thinking, you know, if it's going to be an inbred offspring, yeah. just just make it, leave it where the parent exactly was. And then if it's going to be, you know... Right, but think about that. Well, sexual reproduction is really useful when you're trying to expand into, when you need more variety. I shouldn't, I'm saying it in such a weird, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to say it how I want to say it and then just pretend I didn't say it wrong. Okay. So the further out a seed lands, right, the chance of that environment being just different enough from the parents environment that's where sexual reproduction is important because you're you're shuffling alleles around there's more diversity and you may get a combination in there that might be able to survive better in this slightly new environment correct you, variation is so important for that and when you think about a wetland this little spot's different from this little spot different right. from this little spot Even just so, a few feet away yeah, yeah yeah but you're exactly right so if you have a cleistogamous, cleistogamous <laughs> flower. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that is a tough word. A cleistogamous flower that's genetically equal to the parent, it's going to land closer to the parent because chances are the habitat, even a microhabitat, is going to be similar. Yeah. I will say, I don't think it's actually identical to the parent. It's not like a clone. Right. But. It's very close, close. close enough, right? right. I, but I just want to make that clear that it, that we're not talking about clones. It's not a, a vegetative reproduction of any type. It's actual sexual reproduction, but it's like it's your really me, your female part is mating with your male part, all of the same individual. It's you know very similar outcomes, inbred in a way. Yeah, yeah. So in one study that I looked at, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but as you just mentioned, even a little bit of distance in some habitats is a big difference. So seeds that were tossed from open flowers they landed about 20 inches away from the parent plant hmm. so ones from the closed flowers usually landed about a foot away from the plant hmm. but there was a much larger range like from the open flower they could land up to two to three feet away okay whereas from the closed flowers they had much less variety and range that they hmm. went out most of them landed pretty close to the parent plant Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I wonder why that is. Well, like we just talked about. No, no. no. Well, I know, but I, I still wonder. What's the mechanism? Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, I guess maybe if it's not producing as showy flowers. I, in, in terms of the violet example, I know those flowers typically all are smaller. They're they're closer to the ground. You know it, your stuff, man. You're exactly right. Okay. Because the cleistogamous. Oh, if you're flowers, further up, it's going to be able to. Like, if you throw a ball on your when you're on your knees right yeah that that ball's probably not going to go as far as if you throw it while you're standing up and you you know and if your arm was shorter i i i, I say it but that was a bad example because if you're on your knees you can still probably throw it pretty high up in the air but i mean if you just had to throw it straight forward in front of you but you're on the right track because yeah. typically a pod from an open jewel weed flower is 
gonna be what? A couple centimeters long? Sure, not not, not big. The some of them get big though. But the clystomagus. <laughs> right. <laughs> the clothes flowers. Right. Those seed pods are typically a millimeter in size. Wow. And just as a a bad comparison, like I'm sure a little trebuchet is gonna launch something <laughs> a lot shorter of a distance than a bigger trebuchet. You know what I mean? Like Usually, it's yeah. got bigger, more powerful mechanics in there that can launch the seeds even further. So. Right. And as you alluded to before, since these are an annual and their seeds only remain viable for one spring, mm -hmm. one season's failure of seed production could mean jewelweed disappears from a habitat for the foreseeable future. I mean, it's, it been, it's gets... been around for a while. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. You talked about a habitat specifically. Correct. So, I mean, it could it could be wiped out of a habitat and then recolonize the habitat. Exactly. And, yeah. But that particular population... Right, is, I mean, a, is, done, is gone. These yeah. plants depend on seeds. Right. So you have two different methods. You know, you have the genetically more diverse seeds from the open flowers going out farther. Mm -hmm. And then those ones that are very genetically similar to the parent dropping close by. Right. All right, now let's talk about pollination. Do you want to walk a little bit? Sure. All right. So we talked about those nectar spurs. Yeah, deep inside the flower, you said. Yes, and if you're not sure what I'm thinking of, this is just a, a tubular elongation, usually formed from petals or sepals in plants. You said the corolla, so that's the petals, right? Right, but in jewelweed, it's a sepal that is modified. Oh, so it's well, one I forgot of the, the funny flowers. I, 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 yeah. I wonder if we're going to see any of the flowers today. Did you did That's you why notice? I picked this spot. Okay. Yeah, they're actually well, worth I'm just some. wondering if we're going to see pods and flowers or just pods. Well, I or... really hope we see a pod because <laughs> yeah. I want to, and especially an older pod because there's something I wanted to show you with the seeds. Mm -hmm. So we'll keep an eye out. We're walking past a wetland right now. Yeah. Lots of cattails turning brown, the leaves uh -huh. turning brown. Now, the nectar spurs are thought to play a role in plant coevolution. We've talked about this before, not just in jewelry, but in lots of plants. Sure. With nectar spurs. Columbine yeah. or Equilegia columbine. So in jewelweed, as I already mentioned, the curvature angles of those nectar spurs are variable. They vary anywhere from zero degrees to 270 degrees. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> now, the angle of the nectar spur, it's important in the pollination and in determining the most efficient pollinator. So for jewelweed, I didn't know this, hummingbirds are major pollinators. Oh, I guess, you know, when I think of bird pollinated plants, I usually think of red. These are pretty close to red. Yeah, so they can be a very deep orange. Okay. I wasn't thinking about that either. Hummingbirds remove more pollen per visit from flowers with curved nectar spurs than with perpendicular nectar spurs. Hmm, okay. But hum hummingbirds aren't the only pollinators. Bees, especially bumblebees, play an important role as well. Wait, can you re can you repeat the that one more time? Hummingbirds remove more pollen per visit. Is that what you're talking about? Uh huh. From flowers with curved nectar spurs than with perpendicular nectar spurs. Because think about it, they're trying to get their their beak in there as deep as they can if it's really curved. Okay. And then they're going to brush their face over the surface of the flower where the pollen is. Okay. All right. So let's go along the edge here. So sure. We can find some. Let's see. We have some asters here. We have a little jewelweed, just the just the leaves. Oh, here's some flowers. Oh, we have a uh, Solenum dulcamaria right there, the bittersweet nightshade. Yeah. Or deadly nightshade. De or deadly nightshade. So here's a flower. Oh yeah. Okay. Nice. Oh, and this one, this one's actually bent. I mean, it's it's facing forward, so um, it did a full 180. Yep. It's completely curved, pointing towards the front of the flower. Mm -hmm. And then we have a nice big pod. Oh yeah. So I'm gonna pop it open now. Oh, those are big seeds. They are. So have you ever eaten these before? No. 
Really? I heard you can cook the young shoots or something. So chew that up in the front, in their front teeth. There's like walnut. So far I'm getting like nothing. Oh no, I have COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm eating one right now. I'm chewing them up in my front teeth and it tastes like walnuts to me. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm getting the taste of, uh, there's some breakfast cereals that have like walnuts in them. Okay. And I, it's like my least favorite part of the breakfast cereal <laughs> because I, I think it has the least amount of flavor because everything else is like a flake coated in sugar, right? And then you get some walnuts in there. <laughs> And it takes away from it. So. I like how you say it tastes like walnuts, and you say it tastes like a breakfast cereal with walnuts. <laughs> well, but that's because I don't really eat walnuts very often. I don't even eat cereal very often. I don't know when the last time I—it's been years since I've had cereal. But that—that that flavor, it's so disappointing that it just sticks with you. <laughs> All right. So those seeds, when they came out of there, we popped it. We could see the five valves. Mm -hmm. What color how, were those seeds? Greenish, whitish. Green. I don't know. So what I'm hoping though is. Keep an eye out if we can find pods that look a little older, because mm -hmm. as the seeds get older, they do turn brown. Okay. So if we can find one that looks pretty old where the seeds are brown, I want to show you something that I just found out yesterday. Hmm. Okay. All right, let's head back where it's less windy. Sure. All right, so we're back on the trail out of the wind, and we were talking about hummingbirds as, as pollinators, and that bumblebee is playing an important role. Hummingbirds seem to be one of the, the major pollinators, and in places where they're not common, jewelweed can still rely on those cleistogamous flowers. Uh -huh. I want to say that once without messing up in this episode. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> now, there's a little story about Charles Darwin. He discovered that in England, where jewelweed was introduced, only about one in 20 plants even bothers to put out showy flowers. Whoa, that's really interesting. There are no hummingbirds there, and bees, for whatever reason, are unlikely to pollinate the flowers there. I don't huh. know if they have species with long enough tongues or what. So maybe uh, maybe that's some natural selection there, yeah. where uh, the plants that didn't bother producing flowers were the ones that were more likely to survive. Or, or sorry, not producing these showy open flowers yeah. for pollination. Yeah. So this two-flowered characteristic of jewelweed, that's what led to its former specific name of impatience by flora. By flora, two-flowered. Which is a much better common name because its current common name, Capensis, uh -huh. it was given to it by a botanist who thought that that species came from the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. Oh boy, Capensis. Right. So I hate that. By flora is a much better specific epithet. Yep. They should break the rule if the name that didn't come first is just more useful. So I saw one reference that they can't change the name just because a current common name is like misleading or something like that? Yeah, you can't. Uh, so I read a book called How Plants Get Their Names by L.H. Bailey, and he breaks it down really, really well. Um, although I say he, I, I don't know if this author's a man or a woman, but <laughs> not that it matters, <laughs> but uh, I have no idea. But I this isn't to... the book you got? No. Okay. Actually, I think I got the title for the Diana Wells book wrong. It's something like a hundred plants and how they got their names or something. Oh, okay. But this book is how plants are named maybe by L.H. Bailey. Either way, it's a really cool book, really old, but kind of teaches you some of the rules of uh, why plants sometimes have these horrible names that don't make that much sense. We'll put some links in the uh, episode. Now. Yeah, All right. an Amazon link. <laughs> so why, Steve, tell the audience, why is this plant called jewelweed? Oh, okay. I skimmed the Eastman chapter and I don't actually remember coming across this sentence, but I think people call it jewelweed because of the way that water beads on the leaves or something. Right. Yeah. So that's, okay. there's a lot of stories about why it's called jewelweed, but okay. that's one. 
folks, if you're ever around jewelweed and you're, you're near water, which and it usually does grow in pretty wet environments, you can take a leaf and if you dip it underwater and look at the surface of the leaf, especially mm. the under surface of the leaf, it appears silvery. Is it because it's got a bunch of, because uh, the stems are glabrous, but the leaves aren't, right? They have a thin film of air trapped by microscopic hairs. Yep. That, that's what I was asking, because that's the leaves are not glabrous. Right. The leaves are, are very, quote unquote, hairy. So. Right. But you wouldn't, if you just grabbed a leaf and felt it, they don't necessarily feel It's not hairy. velvety or anything, right. necessarily. They're yeah. so small. But the adaptive value of this waterproofing remains unknown. We don't know why it's there. Oh, I don't think it's waterproofing. Well, so what one thing that would happen, I'll say right now, is that I'm holding a mic right now. Yeah. When I have the mic close to the ground, it's less likely to get blown by the wind and have some really tough uh, noises for the audience to hear. But if I stuck, if I stuck the mic way up in the air, further from the ground, it would get more of that. And that's because there's little microstructures on the ground that kind of it's like a barrier layer that protect the air around us right now from getting blown away. You and for a plant that's not trying to lose moisture, that's super important because it inside of a leaf, it's the the humidity is like a hundred percent, and you want to keep that hundred percent because of when the st stomata is open, you're gonna lose water like crazy if you don't have that barrier layer, and that's what those little hairs help with. What are stomata? Stomata are the little basically little holes in the plant that the plant can control and either have them open or closed because plants want to take in CO2 and they want to release oxygen because oxygen is really bad for the inside of a plant. But what they don't want to lose is water. They don't want to lose water from the inside of the leaf. And without that barrier layer of hairs over the leaf kind of controlling the, the flow of air, the air just outside of the leaf is actually pretty humid, right in that little region of hairs. It's relatively humid because those hairs break up, um, break, up, break up the airflow. And that's actually part of the reason why smokestacks are so high in the air, because you, don't, you want a smokestack high enough so it can get carried away. It's kind of a, the same principle of how they, why they have those as high as they do. Sorry, I went on a weird tangent. No, no, that was good because <laughs> I was about to jump in, but you were on a roll, so I just let you go. Okay. I was going to say, you didn't hear when I said the word waterproofing. You obviously didn't hear the air quotes that were around. Oh, I, oh see, you said waterproofing, but it's not about waterproofing. <laughs> They're in wetlands, though, so I just, you know. But I will say, if you take that leaf and you dip it in water and you pull it out, it will not feel wet. Right. So it does keep outside water. Right. You know. it, it happens to be waterproof. Right. Yeah. Whether right. that's uh, advantageous or not, it happens to have this waterproof quality. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so another possible source of the jewelweed name is because these leaves seem to shed water. I actually came across several poems in my research that referred to dew or rain when they kind of gather along the edges of the leaf. Mm. It looks like jewels. Is it like almost hanging off the lip? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the last one, I had heard this a few times, probably in the past 10 or 20 years, that if you, I'm going to give away what I was hoping I wanted to show you, but if mm. we find an old seed, we'll do it. I had heard that if you take a jewelweed seed mm -hmm. and you take off the outside coat. It's a jewel. <laughs> so it's that it's robin's egg blue. Really? there. So I, I looked this up. I just uh -huh. typed in like jewelweed, blue seeds. And when I did that search, I found maybe two pictures hmm. of what claimed to be jewelweed seeds showing the seed coat pulled off and it's blue underneath. And I'm like, who knows if someone doctored this or it's not jewelweed. So yesterday I went out and spent about 20 minutes popping jewelweed <laughs> seeds 
And young ones, like the mm -hmm. ones we just found and tried that were green on the outside, I would use my pocket knife and just try to shave off the outside coating. Mm -hmm. And on some of them, I saw a light blue tinge to it. Mm. So then I started searching specifically for older seeds that were brown. And when you do scrape off the outer coating, I'm going to show you a picture. And I'll post this in the episode notes. Man, now I really hope that we find... Check it out. This is you? This is me. Wow. That is my picture. It's like a, almost like this... It's almost like sea blue, yeah. this bluish greenish type of color. That blows my mind. I didn't that realize crazy? that that, yeah. I just thought it was going to be false. Nope. I, yeah. Wow. So that may be a so that's, source. That maybe that's the jewel. Yeah. yeah maybe wow. that's the source of the name as well. So hopefully wow. we can find an older pod. Man, you learn something new about jewelweed every day. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, that's the saying, right? That's right. Yeah. Now, here in the United States, do you know, I know this is asking a lot. Hmm. But do you know like the the, na the native range of jewelweed? No, no idea. So I just kind of assumed it was continent-wide hmm. or most of the continent. And I came across a debate that I was not aware of. So populations here in the US, it's all of the East, pretty much up to the Rocky Mountains. Hmm. Okay? And then in the Pacific Northwest and most of Canada. Okay. If you go onto USDA plants and you look at the range of Impatience Capensis, jewel orange jewelweed, mm -hmm. that's what it shows. But I found a couple references to the state of Washington classifying Impatience capensis as a noxious weed hmm. due to its rapid spread and tendency to outcompete native jewelweeds. Hmm. So I'm like, what's going on here? What, what other species? Of oh, they must be talking about Pallida then, I, I would imagine. Unless they have other species. No, they have other species. Oh, okay, interesting. So this led me down I don't want to say a rabbit hole because it really didn't go that hmm. deep. I just assumed North America was pretty jewelweed poor, but maybe no. it is compared to other places or, well, how no, many no. species do we have? Oh, you mean other species Spe of jewelweed. Yeah, in terms of species, yeah, So diversity. here in the east, it, we don't seem to have a ton of species, I think. I came across Pallida and, yeah, Capensis. Yeah. Out west, there were three species, Impatiens orella, Impatiens ecalcarata, and then Impatiens Noli tangere. It looks like a yeah, almost like a French specific epithet. Noli tangere. Yeah. Hmm. Now there are common names there. Um, one of them I know is like Western jewelweed. Calcarata has something to do with tooth, probably. Oh, I know. Well, because I was Calcarata. Because I was thinking that the fanged pitcher plant is by Nepenthes by Calcarata. So All maybe right. it's tooth related. Something I can imagine that with the because they got the spur or something or I don't know these. It would be cool to see the, the flower just out of curiosity. Yeah. But, hmm. So this debate all seems to go back to one botanist by the name of Peter Zika. Back in 2006, <laughs> he works for the Burke Herbarium out of the University of Washington. And I'm just going to read to you what he wrote. And there was a, a botanical newsletter that came out. Hmm. And he said, spotted jewelweed is native in eastern North America and parts of boreal Canada, but not west of the Rockies. Hmm. Now a lot of sources, even USDA plants, list this jewelweed species, Impatience compensis, as native in the Pacific Northwest. He's hmm. saying no, and this is why. I came to that conclusion after looking at hundreds of herbarium collections in wild populations. All of the verified local records for Impatience capensis begin in 1950, hmm. which is 80 to 100 years after the start of the collecting record for our three natives he's talking about in Washington. Right. What's the chance that, that no one collected it? Exactly. Yeah. 
In addition, Icapensis acts like a recently introduced weed and has been spreading rapidly in ditches and disturbed wetlands over the last half century, while our native species west of the Cascades are declining as wetland habitat is lost. This by itself may not sound alarming, but where I. capensis meets I. Ecalcarata, and that's called spurless touch-me-not or mm -hmm. western touch-me-not, the native and non-native species hybridize. I found these crosses in 87% of the populations of Impatiens E. calcarata west of the Cascades. So it's mm. moving in, at least according to him, and right. hybridizing hmm. with some of the natives. So that's why he got the state, I don't know if he was responsible for it, but the state of Washington does classify it as a noxious weed. Interesting. Yeah. I think this is a good spot to break and we can talk about Gum Leaf USA. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to walk while we talk? Yeah, why don't we yeah. walk and Maybe we'll even find some more jewel weed. All right. Got some geeks flying overhead. <laughs> and our geese, let me get this right, are not flying south. A lot of our geese around here fly north, right? Oh, okay. So they head up to the, the huge fields up in Ontario. I didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of them <laughs> winter up there because they can get enough food from just what's left in the fields. And if you want to go hiking to see those geese. <laughs> <laughs> or other birds in your area. <laughs> yeah, you can... Uh, Shop with uh, Gumleaf USA. <laughs> These guys produce tall rubber boots. They're made from 80% rubber, is that right? That's right, 80% natural rubber. So they can bend a lot more. Some say to, a million times. Some say a million more times <laughs> than a rubber boot that may look the same and cost less, but is not as high quality as Gumleaf USA. Mm -hmm. And I do have to say, as both of us being owners of Gumleaf USA, I will say... Gumleaf USA boots. We don't own the company. <laughs> as owners of Gumleaf USA, <laughs> a pair of their boots, yeah. I think they're very comfortable. Yep. You know, as someone that's done a lot of field work uh, and, and plenty of jobs that I've been in, and just using whatever boots they had at the field station, it was really nice to finally have a nice, high-quality pair for myself. Yeah. And the pair that I have, I think I have the Royal Zip. Mm -hmm. I've used those in every season, even though when I first got them, I didn't think they would be a winter boot. Yeah. Um, but they have a great neoprene lining and they do keep my feet warm, even in the snow and cold temperatures. Yeah. Now the owner of Gumleaf USA, he has been a longtime supporter of the show and he was nice enough to provide patrons of the podcast with free shipping for any pair of boots that they order from gumleafusa.com. Yep, and I think we have it pinned right on our Patreon page for only patrons to be able to see that code. Right, and we'll talk about how to become a patron at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. So check out gumleafusa.com and back to the episode. And we have gone off trail a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Bill just sort of pointed and I just started following. We're not going to find any jewelweed here, folks. We are in the middle of uh, a pretty dry woods right now, <laughs> but I do think it gets a little wet up ahead. Okay. But one of the things I looked for on the, the spot of jewelweed that we did stop at was for any galls. Oh, interesting. So have you seen jewelweed? It'll get a round kind of oblong bump on certain parts of the plant. They're usually reddish. You know what? I have not noticed it, uh, you know, out of my own uh, laziness and ignorance. And Honestly, I think I probably noticed it before and just didn't take note of it and forgot about it mm -hmm. because noticing that in my backyard just within the past few weeks, that is what kind of spurred me on to do an episode on jewelweed. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of insects that utilize jewelweed in different ways, but that gall, it's an aborted bud gall produced oh. by a midge. 
Schizomyia impatientis. <laughs> Let me try that again. Impatientis. Tis. Schizomyla impatientis. Hmm. The galls, obviously they provide shelter and food. Steve's checking my I pronunciation. I think we know that genus from something else. I have a feeling that for some reason that just sounds so familiar. And I wonder if if we went back to our goldenrod episode, if that was oh. one of the midges. You know what? Because it sounds really familiar. Is there another one that's maybe Schizomaya, Golden and Innis, or maybe. Solidago? Doesn't one of them yeah. have that? Something. Yeah. We'll have to look that up. I'll yeah. put it in the episode notes. <laughs> now, if you break these galls open, sometimes you're going to find a lone resident in there. Mm-hmm. But these Like a larva developing, correct? Right, but yeah. these galls are actually colonial. Mm. So there's usually several larvae in there. They're going to be orange. Sounds disgusting. <laughs> and they're going to be found residing in separate cavities within oh, the gall. Okay. So if we do find one, we'll cut one open and see what we find inside. They actually emerge now, and then they burrow down into the ground, and they overwinter as adults. And then, you know, to find the next plant, they only got to go uh, up to four feet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go very far. <laughs> yeah. All right, now, I picked jewelweed, honestly, to want to find out about the gall. Mm-hmm. But I also, just for whatever reason, over the past few months, I've had several people ask me about jewelweed and using jewelweed as a cure for poison ivy. Right. I mean, you've written a little blog about this on our website. On the website. Yeah. Now, I'm figuring not a lot of people go to read. the website and oh. read that. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to share that as the, the main piece of the episode. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good thing to add. But I was... I shouldn't have been impressed, but there is so much research that happens around jewelweed. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it has a wide range and is widespread. I was going to say, wetland research in general. Like, if, if you happen to be a wetland plant, yeah. you're probably going to get covered a bunch. So. so there's lots of studies that I could talk about, but a couple stood out to me. And these have to do with invasive species and with deer. One of them looked at garlic mustard and how it interacts with jewelweed. Hmm. Previous studies have shown that garlic mustard has negative impacts on jewelweed, Hmm. as well as lots of other understory forest species, right? I want to know if garlic mustard can be paired with jewelweed in terms of uh, fine dining. (laughs) Probably. Because you can eat part of the jewelweed. So, I mean, other than the seeds we just ate, but... Now, the researchers for this study, this is actually a little bit old, this is from 2009, in a growth room experiment, they wanted to investigate if jewelweed from areas without garlic mustard what they referred to as naive plants, <laughs> and jewelweed from nearby areas with garlic mustard, what they called experienced plants, varied okay. in their response. Hmm. They made reference to the fact that jewelweed has been found good for studies on natural selection because it is such a fast-growing annual. It mm-hmm. grows pretty rapidly. Studies have shown that it can respond quickly to selective forces such as things like light availability. So in this study, they took 36 jewelweed plants from the field and they were grown with garlic mustard in pots for 16 weeks. They measured the height, stem diameter, reproduction, and biomass of the jewelweed, and then also the biomass of the garlic mustard. So explain to people what this next sentence means. There was a significant negative correlation between biomass and height of naive jewelweed and biomass of garlic mustard. I would assume that that would mean the, the higher the biomass of the garlic mustard, the lower the biomass of, of the, the jewelweed. jewelweed. But yes. is it possible that it's also the other way around? It's possible, but not in this okay, case. Okay, not in this case. <laughs> you read it correctly. Okay. Right. <laughs> so the more garlic mustard, the less of the naive jewelweed. It just wasn't doing as well. 
-hmm. There was no significant correlation between those variables for experienced jewelweed and the garlic mustard. Hmm. So, sorry. So you said experienced jewelweed, there wasn't a, a decrease in biomass. Did not seem to be. Interesting. In this experiment. Hmm. So, but the sample size was small and the researchers didn't know how long the jewelweed had been growing with the garlic mustard. Because hmm. that would probably be a variable as well. Right. But the results still do indicate the potential for the evolution of resistance in jewelweed to the presence of garlic mustard. Right. And I wonder if it's an actual physical change as right. in different genes or different regulation of genes or if it's something that's what we say like epigenetic where you know you can have um, certain genes sort of shut off or activated without really a change in the actual dna i wonder what the answer is going to be now i'm smiling as you're talking yeah. because i did start to look into it <laughs> and there were a lot of papers that were making references to changes in the mycorrhizal communities in the soil oh so that's not even what i'm talking about uh, right. this is a even a different thing this is right. a they have a little guardian a fungal guardian or something instead of, i'm saying i'm being romantic about it but uh, <laughs> right but we've talked about mycorrhizal fungus before yeah, and associates how, with lots of plant roots. right and how yeah. important they are to mm -hmm. just wild plants in almost every habitat right so that was a huge rabbit hole that i'm like all right, right. this could probably be a whole episode unto itself yeah, i'm sure it could be a few episodes <laughs> right yeah. a whole series so that led me to another study about white-tailed deer now, obviously, white-tailed deer—they're wonderful for forests all over. Oh, hold on! But just to wrap up the last thing, so yeah. but and we don't know. So we don't know what what the. No, we don't know what the mechanism. Okay, is. we don't know yeah. what the mechanism. We just I we, didn't we, get into we, that. we see these patterns of experienced jewelweed doing one thing and, and naive jewelweed doing another, but we just don't know why yet. Or at well, least you don't know why. I don't know why. You don't know why. Got it. <laughs> There's more. You and I don't know why. There's smarter people out there, <laughs> right? <laughs> and if one of them's listening, let us know. Uh huh. Honestly, I just didn't want this episode to be too long because I know I have to edit it. Right. And you know what? And and, and uh, I'm always looking for an excuse to uh, to go on a, a trip to do an episode or something. You know, I do I do work from home a bunch, so yeah. I could always work from the road, I guess. And so we, if, if there's a researcher working on Jewelweed, we could fly out to you or totally, something. Totally. Invite us out. Yeah. We'd love we to talk. have a few laughs. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So... I was being facetious a moment ago when I said how wonderful white-tailed deer are for our eastern forest. In fact, look around. I mean, we're in a we're in a forest right now that completely lacks an understory. Yes, and there are a lot of deer around here. It's open. There's nothing. There's nothing growing really. Just little things here and there. Very but very little. But yeah. they probably won't even last either. No. Yeah. All right. So. The white-tailed deer, as I just mentioned, there's a lot of them around here, and I know that's Obviously. a very scientific term. <laughs> right. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Take notes. But this is, we've talked about this this before, this is ideal habitat for deer because they have these little patches of woods to hide out in, mm -hmm. and then they come out in the evening, and all the developments that surround this place, they just, it's a smorgasbord for, for Right, deer. right. And there's no major predators. Besides. I was going to say, not only is it ideal in that regard, it's yeah. ideal in terms of nothing eats them. Right. Yeah. There's just a lot of cars, right? Right, right. So the researchers in this study, this is from 2015, they hypothesized that browsing by deer imposed selection on defensive traits in jewelweed. Hmm. So to test this hypothesis, they collected individuals, individual jewelweed from 26 natural populations across a 5,000 square kilometer area in New York State. Half of those populations were historically protected from deer, half were exposed to heavy browsing. And then they planted jewelweed in common gardens that were subjected to natural deer browsing or no browsing. Hmm. 
So the results from those populations that were historically browsed exhibited significantly higher tolerance than those from protected populations. Herbivory by deer reduced lifetime fruit production in those populations that had been browsed historically by only 20%. In those jewelweed populations that hadn't been hadn't seen deer browsing, mm -hmm. fruit production reduced by 57%. Hmm. So 20% versus 57%. Mm -hmm. They found two mechanisms that were correlated with this increased tolerance. The plants increased their number of flowering days and they increased fruits per flowering node. So the plants were responding. Hmm. And the results suggest that these populations evolved increased tolerance or that historically protected populations lost tolerance over time. And one thing I wonder about these studies is, and I don't know if you, you've made note of this detail, but because we're talking about an annual, right? Yeah. Is the study going over multiple season, like multiple years? Because I want to know, is the change within a single growing season, uh, within mature adults, or is it within the offspring of certain adults that were successful in previous years? And that, that's gonna make a huge difference, whether it's selection, right? Or yeah. whether it's something, some type of plasticity that the plant has. From this study, they did take jewelweed from sites that were historically browsed over many years, not just okay, a single so, year. So, so the, these populations, the big difference was browsed versus unbrowsed, and they've had time to... Yes, to... and it wasn't just from one season. They were historically browsed I for, see. for many seasons. All got right. it, got it, got it, got it. So that was that's really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to jewelweed. And I think what I'll do right. is, you know, over the next month, I think I'll do quick posts on social media hmm. about some of the other studies I came across. Cool. But I wanted to get to now talking about poison ivy, because I'm sure almost everybody out there, if you've heard of jewelweed, I bet many of you have heard of jewelweed because people say it's a cure for poison ivy. Well, I got this one. So nature knows everything. And there is a sacred balance in nature where, and this is just one of many billions of, or infinite number of examples, where, where you'll find poison ivy growing right next to it. You're gonna find jewelweed. That's right. And that's mother nature telling you, I'm gonna hurt you, but I'm gonna heal you too. You just gotta know, right? You just gotta know about it. I mean, it's either that or it's a coincidence or something. I don't know. That's the perfect segue. <laughs> because the first time I was shown that jewelweed cures poison ivy, I was told that exact thing. Yeah. Right? Uh, but I was told that the Native Americans knew that. They put that extra, you know, mustard on top there that, right. yeah, this is a Native American thing. The Native Americans always said that if there's a poison, there's a cure somewhere nearby. Mm-hmm. Now, Sarcasm aside. No comment. <laughs> poison ivy and Is it rude to say no comment? <laughs> no. Okay, good. But poison ivy and jewelweed do often share similar habitat, right? Mm -hmm. they, they both do like wet habitats, but... Same with cattails, <laughs> same with... You can find... With, uh, yeah. You uh, can find jewelweed with poison duckweed. ivy not growing anywhere nearby. <laughs> right. Now, are you allergic to poison ivy? For all the years I've been hiking, I've never had a, okay. a reaction, but I've also never just tested it by rubbing it on myself, so I don't know. You've never had COVID either, so maybe you're immune to that. Maybe I'm immune. Maybe there's a connection. <laughs> Speaking of correlations here, maybe there's a connection between poison ivy immunity and COVID there immunity. I like that. There's I a like study. it. Yeah. So, 
I, just like you, had been... Maybe a... Jewel Weaver will undo my my immunity. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just ate it. <laughs> Hurry, sneeze in my face. All right, somehow we got it. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's my fault, totally. <laughs> so, I also have never had poison ivy. Mm-hmm. Wondered if I was immune, because a certain portion of the population is immune. Right. I assume I'm not. My brother wasn't. He was, I think he was ripping it out of his garden or something one time, and he was, like, loaded. He had to, like, not go into work the next day. Or I'm sure next few days, I'm, I'm sure. But, but he had just eaten a whole echinacea plant. So. Th- yeah, so that's the problem. <laughs> his immune system was boosted. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. <laughs> but what I did do, I wanted to see if, if I was allergic to poison ivy. So over the course of seven days, did I ever tell you this? I slowly put... I would cut a piece of poison ivy and hmm. slowly put more and more on my hand. No, I, I don't think you told me. So just increasing exposure. And after about three or four days, I did start to get a rash. Hmm. Interesting. So I think I am allergic to it, but it's probably mildly allergic to it. Right. But lots of sources out there will say that jewelweed cures poison ivy. There's also lots of sites that say it'll take away the itch of insect stings, and that it cures stinging nettles. Little anecdote, I've tried it on stinging nettles, no effect. I mean, and not only that, but stinging nettle doesn't last that long anyway. Right. I, I used to work as a botanist in, in Illinois, and sometimes we would have stinging nettles or wood nettle above our waist. Yeah. And we were in thin field pants. So you can imagine my whole lower body was on fire <laughs> and burning. Because I'm not kidding when I say we would be in a forest and it would be the full forest floor. Like, And, and this stuff is, like I said, this above total waist height. So it's not just your legs and everything else that's down there getting on fire and itching, but it's also like even part of your stomach too, you know? Like it's that high. And um, maybe you just have a very high but, but it go, But it goes away eventually. No, you're like, <laughs> after, after being out in the field for hours and hours and hours of just pure discomfort, and then you're like, this better not happen again. You start like shaking. <laughs> it's like if it happens, you're like, oh my god. Yeah, it's horrible. But I, but even even through that, it's not the longest lasting discomfort feeling. So if I put anything on it, it the pain would go away eventually. So I could see where that rumor popped up. Anyway, uh, that would be my thing. But where you, did you see the fire in my eyes for a moment? Because of that, th- those memories haunt me it to this funny day. How you started off that anecdote by saying it's really not that bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> It's not that bad in terms of the length of the pain, yeah. uh, but the severity is bad. So, yeah. But we're just going to get to the bottom here. I did research, does it work for, for poison ivy? Right. And I'll, I'll say in all fairness, there's lots of sites out there that say it doesn't work for poison hmm. ivy. And as, as with most things, the truth is in the middle. Now, most people that say it is effective, that jewelweed is effective at curing or treating the poison ivy rash, contact dermatitis, most cite a study from 1958. So in that study, there was a, a jewelweed treatment that was compared with other poison ivy treatments. Hmm. In the jewelweed group, 108 out of 115 patients were entirely relieved of their symptoms within two or three days. So you can see why that study is often cited. Mm-hmm. Nearly every reference to that study fails to mention a follow-up study from 1980, where two researchers, they questioned whether it wasn't the jewelweed that cured the poison ivy, but maybe it was just the water that it was mixed in that right. cured the rash. So they tested their hypothesis by treating some poison ivy rashes with water, some with jewelweed, and some with nothing. Their results pointed to jewelweed having no effect on the rash, and that plain water may have a slight benefit. Hmm. Another study in 1997 seemed to confirm these findings. So at that time, things weren't looking good for jewelweed. Oh boy. But with all studies, 
it's always good to dig into the methods, right? Right. To get the complete picture. That 1958 study, the first one made use of the entire plant, while the latter two just used stem extracts. Mm. All right? Yeah, that's going to be... I mean, I'm not saying it's this... It's a big difference. Yeah, though. I'm not saying this uh, sarcastically. That is a big difference. Yeah, so could... Especially if the whole thing came from people using it in natural settings. You right. know, They weren't taking an extract. Right? Yeah, yeah. So could those extracts lack the compounds that affect poison ivy? True. So a study in 2012 decided to answer this. Different groups of volunteers with poison ivy were treated. I had to wonder how they did this. Like, did they just put a call out? Hey, if you have poison ivy, quick. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were treated with jewelweed extracts, fresh plant mashes, mm-hmm. soaps made with jewelweed extracts, because those are out there. Sure. A lot of them are super expensive. And then another group was treated with water and dish soap. The researchers reported that with 95% confidence, jewelweed mash is effective in decreasing the development of the poison ivy rash. Hmm. But even more effective, soap and water. The soap and water. <laughs> the yeah. soap and water. I, I, was, I was actually just thinking, like, I wonder if soap wort would outcompete jewelweed. Well, you're on that, the right track. That right? makes a real sudsy, you know. Yep. You're, see, Steve is such a smart cat. <laughs> And I should say, the jewelweed soaps containing those jewelweed extracts, they were no more effective than the dish soap. They basically mm-hmm. performed as soap. But more effective, did this study look at water? I already forgot the list of things they looked at. It, water was not as effective. Okay. So the researchers hypothesized that jewelweed may show effectiveness because it contains saponins. Okay. These are, and these particular saponins, chemical compounds that produce soap-like foam when mixed with water. Mm. So these researchers, and I, I love this, they did a follow-up study in 2015 to test that hypothesis and the results confirmed it. A jewelweed plant mash showed some reduction in poison ivy rash, but extracts of the saponins showed a greater reduction. Wow, so an extract can do it. Of the saponins. Of the saponins, right. Yeah. And then the greater reduction was also in the groups treated with just soap and water. Hmm. So the greatest reductions were found in two groups, those treated with double strength saponin extract mm-hmm. and those treated with soap and water. Hmm. So the bottom- you know, Not everyone's got soap and water when they're out right, on a right, hike. It's so. true. The, so yeah. the bottom line, research does show that jewelweed is indeed an effective cure He's, for poison ivy. You just gotta extract the saponins yeah. while you're out on the trail and then double <laughs> strength that on your arm. But even just the mash <laughs> right, is right, still right, good. Right. But soap and water are more effective. So here's why. The component of poison ivy that causes the rash is what? Urusherol. It's an oil. It's an oil, right. The oil needs to come in contact with your skin. The longer the exposure, the worse the rash. Mm -hmm. So if you have an oil on you, water is going to do a poor job alone. It's going to do some. Yep, right, because it's van der Waals forces instead of hydrogen bond forces. (laughs) Soap is going to work better, though, right? right? So if you're out in your backyard, you're out on the trail, and you think you've come into contact with poison ivy sap and that ruchiol if you don't have soap and water handy but there's jewelweed nearby go yeah. ahead and mash it up mash it put up. it on there try <laughs> to get it nice and sudsy as sudsy as you can and that'll help remove the oil <laughs> just grab the jewelweed just mashing it up seeds are flying everywhere <laughs> ballistically <laughs> i'm glad you mentioned that though that's a perfect way to wrap up so folks if you do have jewelweed around you if you've never done it i don't know if you've ever done it i've done it plenty of times but this is an old natural i like to show like if i have like a kid relative or something yeah. or for, you know my fiance's family i like showing them no no no. but this is next level stuff oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. you find a nice patch of jewelweed uh-huh. at this time of year when there's lots of pods and you take a long branch and you put it in there and just move it all around 
and the jewelweed seeds just start flying wow. like crazy. Oh, so. okay. That, that's even better, I <laughs> think. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I think that's a good spot to wrap up. Yeah. So I do want to say thank you to our newest iTunes reviewer. How are you going to say that? Ethionut or E the O nut? I don't know. Oh, E the O nut. I, I like a Theo nut. Yeah, either way, thanks for uh, dropping us a review on iTunes. We yeah. want to encourage all you listeners out there, if you have not given us a, a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use, please do that. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Yeah. And with that in mind, I do want to thank NorfolkNaturalist.ca. Oh, cool. That's a great nature blog that recently just within the past month or two did a podcast review very cool and i would say definitely check out their website norfolknaturalist.ca they have lots of great posts on lots of natural history topics all right and that brings us to the next thing Ugh. steve's taking something out Ugh, we got some field guides here <laughs> <laughs> that were sent to us by the national autobahn society <laughs> and the two books that we have these two field guides are the trees of North America and the birds of North America. Now, Bill can attest to this. These are pretty big field guides, <laughs> right? They, I don't know if I would call them field guides. <laughs> right, right. I mean, close enough. They are a, they are a guide. <laughs> they are a guide. <laughs> Whether they're a field guide is arguable. Right. Uh, especially the uh, birds of North America one. That one's very, very big. And I will say that nowhere, to be fair, nowhere on here does it say it's a field guide. True, 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 true. I did have it in my field pack. It's just the, the brain, the top part of a, a hiking pack or whatever. But um, You did seem pretty but, weighted but, down. But, the but it, it did take up a lot of room inside the pack. So I would really keep these maybe in my car. I might keep them at home in, in my office or something. And I do, before you continue yeah. though, I feel like I do just have to say, so the publisher, Knopf, did send these, they reached out to us and asked if we would review these books on the podcast. Yeah. So so that's why they're doing it. They were nice enough to send us free copies, mm -hmm. which was always good for us. Um, although I do have to say my Birds of North America, all I got was the envelope in my mailbox. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny when you brought that up. My Birds of North America, the one side had been opened because I think the book is so big yeah. that it split the seam. And so your spleen, your spleen, oh my God. <laughs> your your seam split and your book fell out. My seam split and my book stayed inside. So I was lucky. You were lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, first I kind of want to talk briefly about the Birds of North America book. So I think this book is really, really well organized. And they actually talk a, a bit about why they designed it the way they did in the beginning of the book but they divide the birds up by general size and shape, which a lot of, a lot of field guides do. Yeah. But this seamlessly translates into the different orders that the bird species belong oh, to. Nice. So it, it's not just that they're grouped by si general size and shape, it says right on each page the order that the, the birds belong to. So for example, if a bird's a passerine, they're in a particular section that's all the same little color label and it's the passeridae. Nice. Um, yeah, so each group, like I was saying, has a different color. Uh, and this can be seen on the foredge of the book, so it's really, really easy just to kind of flip through. And, you, and it also includes this little small silhouette that represents the general body shape of the group uh, when you're flipping nice. through the pages. So as you thumb through it, it's right there where your thumb would naturally fall. You can flip right to the section you want. Yeah, so I think groups, like general groups of birds, are really, really easy to find. They're really easy to narrow down. And when you identify a bird you just saw, you don't just identify it, but all the all the species surrounding, it, you know, and all the species in the surrounding pages are actually close relatives. 
So, uh, you know, and that's kind of fun for people that like to think about evolution and sort of more deep time, um, which clearly I think Bill and I both like to look into. Yeah. Um, but there's also a section right in the back of the book that describes each bird family mentioned in the book, uh, which I think that's really, awesome. really, really cool. And then each bird, um, every page has a different bird on it. And these pages, they have pictures of the birds, uh, as well as a description, voice, nesting, habitat, range, along with uh, a map on that same page, which is really, really nice. Yeah. Because there are some field guides, like uh, to flip. another Audubon guide, <laughs> <laughs> where you have to flip all the way to the back of the book to get the range map. Uh, so this is nice. It's right on the same page. Um, they also tell you some similar species, as well as, and I think this is really cool, the conservation status. Oh, and that it, is nice. it, it's in a, a specific um, code. Like for example, we're looking right now at Lawrence's goldfinch conservation status LC, which is least concern. Right. You can see that right away. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. um, you know, and. I really like this book as a reference. I actually think it has a lot of good information in it. I love that they take taxonomy and evolution into account. And they even, you can see at the top of every page, um, Gaviformes. We're looking at the, the loons, loons right now. Yeah. yeah, so every page, it tells you the order that the, the, the group of birds belongs to. So. That's nice, because I feel like whether you're just starting out or whether you're an experienced bird or you're inter interested more in families and stuff like that, you could find something worthwhile in this book. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of it, and I'm really glad they sent it to us. All right, now the trees. I haven't really thought about the tree <laughs> one. <laughs> but the, so let's take a look at it together. <laughs> but the tree one, it's it's the same. I actually, I did receive the tree one. Right, this I wanted to make sure I covered the bird one because both Bill and I have the tree one. So. so the tree one did come to me, but same thing. Like they have tree silhouettes along the spine so you can flip right yep. to the group that you want Different to. color coding. So it's just really, really easy to just flip to where exactly where you want. Yeah, but it's set up just like the bird book where on each page you have multiple pictures of the fruit, yep. the leaves. The orders a, are still in the top. You have a range map. Yep. And then in the back of the book, there yep. is a section on tree, tree families, families. Yeah. which I love because most field guides do not have that. Right. I mean, because most field guides and most even, I would say, like non-texts about plants aren't really going to get into the systematics or describe families right. or or even talk about orders yeah. or anything like that. You know, you typically have to buy a systematics book for that. And yeah. it's very nice that these are small, easily travel size, in my opinion. It's just nice to have something that you would, I would throw this in my car. I would keep it in my trunk. Oh, definitely. I, I would, you know, uh, currently I, I was having them in my office. I, I think they're just a, it's a nice book. And my favorite spot. Oh, really nice binding, by the way. And I like that there's the uh, ribbon. The ribbon. They uh, put a ribbon in there yep. so you can wear it your page very nice classy mm -hmm. <laughs> so i think we'd give them both a thumbs up yeah, yeah. for sure not uh, easy for taking on the trail but a great reference book nah. yeah <laughs> yeah so check them both out folks trees of north america from the national audubon society birds of north america by the national audubon society both published by Knopf. yeah <laughs> bathroom books all right i know in the positive way <laughs> some people keep a, a book in their bathroom and they read it while they're on the tour i think it'd be a great bathroom book <laughs> yeah <laughs> who doesn't do that <laughs> So folks, thank you for listening. We do want to thank our patrons. And as we've done the past couple episodes, we're going to have my daughter, Violet, run through our list of top patrons. We're working her to the bone. <laughs> I think she likes doing it. <laughs> She's not complaining. Uh -huh. But if you are interested in becoming a patron of the podcast, check us out on patreon.com. If you just type in the field guides, we will come up. And we want to thank each and every patron. But as I mentioned, we do give a special shout out to all our top patrons each episode. But if you're not into a monthly donation, you can visit thefieldguidespodcast.com and you can make a one-time PayPal donation. 
Financial support does help us keep the podcast going, it keeps the podcast free, and it helps us do cool stuff in the future. Like travel to people doing research on <laughs> jewelry. jewelry. <That's> yeah. right. <laughs> but if you can't afford to financially support the podcast, we totally understand. We appreciate you listening. Please share the podcast with friends, or as we've already mentioned, give us a review. So as always, you guys can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you have any episode suggestions or current criticisms, I guess. <laughs> we'll take those. Yeah, feel free to send us an email or just friendly news, anything you guys want to yeah, send sure. us. Just send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. That's right. And parents, don't forget, get those kids outside. Let them get muddy. Let them get dirty. Let them flip over rocks and logs. Let them play in the poison ivy. <laughs> if there's jewelweed nearby. <laughs> uh-huh. Of course. And those of you without kids, don't forget to get yourselves outside as well. You can get muddy and dirty as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time. Yep, see you next time. And here's Violet with this month's top patrons. Eric, Alyssa, the Hebranks, Mary, Todd, Callie, Sean C., Rich, Jessica, Rochelle, the Drunk Phytologist, Orange Julianne, Diane, Ken, Jake, Melissa and Dusty, Arizona, Celia, Kelly, Sarah, Andy, Helen, MD, Judy, Ben, Andrew, Lauren, Jane, Doodle Dude 82, Gallon Mac, Kazzies, Jeff, Goose Egg, Esther, John W, Bethany, Name the Dog Indy, Rob, Jonathan A, Hannah, Sean. Thank you everyone for your support of the podcast. Steve and I appreciate it. And Violet, thank you. You're welcome.